Welcome to Regulated and Relational, the bi-monthly podcast produced by the Attachment Trauma Network. We're kicking off our second season with a deep conversation about what's at the center of very connected therapeutic parenting and trauma-informed care, a purposeful balance of structure and nurture. Sometimes critics portray trauma-informed attachment-focused strategies as being too permissive or without any accountability. Today, our hosts Julie Beam and Ginger Healy address this and talk about how the balance of nurture and structure leads to both accountability and authentic relationship. Let's join them now. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Regulated and Relational, our podcast produced by the Attachment and Trauma Network. I'm Julie Beam. And I'm Ginger Healy. And we're excited to share with you from both our personal experiences and our professional knowledge, what it means to truly be attachment-focused, trauma-informed, and how we can help children impacted by early trauma. So today we're going to talk about what we at ATN believe to be at the center of therapeutic parenting. And by therapeutic, we define that as parenting that helps children to heal from their early adversities, especially to move forward toward more healthy attachment and build more resilience than would be there if we weren't parented in a therapeutic way. You may not know that the Attachment and Trauma Network's founding was all about supporting parents and families whose children had had some very traumatic early beginnings. So for those of us who sought support and education from ATN way back in the 1990s, when the organization was first founded, we were looking for some magic parenting strategies that would change our children's behaviors which in many cases were what we now know to be severe fight, fight, or freeze behaviors. Remember, this was before the neuroscience was there and the attachment-focused brain-based parenting methods that have finally become more well-known. Typically, we were parents whose children were exhibiting some pretty big negative behaviors actually harming themselves or others, and we were not finding any typical parenting solutions from any typical parenting gurus that worked. By typical, I mean things like rewards and consequences, use of sticker charts, ignoring their behaviors, timeouts, or even punishments. And just like most parents, what we were trying to accomplish was to get the behaviors to stop and to get our children to comply with what we wanted or needed them to do. But if our children of severe trauma have taught us anything, it is important for all parents and educators to reflect on this. Should it be our goal to extinguish behaviors and teach compliance or Should it be our goal to give them the lifelong ability to navigate the world and to navigate their emotions, to help them establish safety and either get calm or get focused, depending on whether they're overactivated or underactivated, so that they can learn and work and have relationships with others and ultimately parent their own children and build healthy relationships into the next generation? Yeah, I mean, I think we would all say the latter if we thought about it, but where I get stuck and others do too is how do we do that? It's not obvious. It's not necessarily common knowledge, but we hope to make it more common. And we do that by seeking an understanding of what's going on underneath the behaviors, of where the behaviors come from and what the child is trying to communicate with the behaviors. 
we all do this early on, or it seems to be more common that parents do this early on with babies, trying to figure out what their cries mean. I'm watching my daughter do that right now with my five-month-old granddaughter and meet those needs. And she does that all day long, trying to figure out what the different cries mean. But somewhere along the way, we decide that a child's behavior has less to do with communicating what's going on inside and what they need and has more to do with their character or what they're trying to get us to do or get something from us or get things we don't want them to have. And while children definitely do exhibit behaviors to avoid doing things and get attention and those things, it's still very important that we ask why. What do they need? What's going on underneath this behavior? Why are they trying to avoid something? Why are they needing attention? Or in other words, why are they needing connection? Exactly. And so this is why parenting that is more therapeutic and takes into account a child's neurodevelopmental levels is so important. Therapeutic parenting is both trauma-informed and attachment-focused. And it truly calls on us to be curious about why a child behaves the way they do. Yes, it does. And it also asks the question why we behave we do. It's been very useful for me as a parent or an adult when caring for a child to wonder why this child's particular behavior is bothering me so much. Like, why is this getting under my skin? Very often, It could be the same reasons that they're having the behavior. I could be physically tired. I could be hungry. I could be depleted from the compassion that I've been showing all day or that I feel for my child, especially if my child keeps having big negative emotions and big behaviors that are hard for me. Or it could be something from my own history and my own background, something that either bugged the heck out of my own parents and I used to get in trouble for, or something that I didn't like even as a child because I you know, maybe didn't like that sensory touch or those things. And you know, something I have a history with. Yeah, that's a really good point. You know, I think as we deep dive into structure and nurture, I just want to point out that it is the balancing of the nurture and the structure. That's the piece that is the tenant of therapeutic parenting that for me, and I think for most can be the hardest. And I also think it's overlooked and without understanding the importance of balancing that structure and nurture, it's easy to believe because we've heard a lot of people say that any connected parenting, whether you call it trauma-informed or brain-based intentional parenting or therapeutic parenting, it's about being permissive, that's kind of been the thought surrounding it, believing that you're never holding the child accountable. But we really want to point out that nothing can actually be farther from the truth. I think for many decades, parenting was highly authoritarian. Children were to be seen and not heard. Parents were to issue commands and children were just to follow those Even the kindest of parents were culturally under the assumption that children who do not follow a direct command quickly and accurately are to be punished. Spankings were a frequent consequence that many of us grew up with. Then parenting experts began to discuss the difference between being an authoritarian parent and authoritative parent. And that's where the relationship was less about making a child fear you or your potential punishment and more about being a parent who expects respect and sets those boundaries. 
And that style of parenting was juxtaposed with permissive parenting where children were not given any boundaries or rules. Very often those parents were trying to let their children have greater expression and to figure out what was underneath their behaviors. But often in that description of permissive parenting, children were described as running wild with parents who just didn't even intervene. And in reality, some parents were truly permissive to the point that they ignored their children or they didn't provide any guidance at all when misbehaviors occurred. So the point is that there is another way to think about our parenting role when we think about what children therapeutically need. And that is having a balance of high nurture combined with high structure. High nurture is really about focusing on the connection with the child and offering help in a relational way, being compassionate, using physical touch, such as hugs, snuggling, rocking, and making time to just stop and listen to your child on their eye level. Those are all nurturing examples. To some, this nurturing can look permissive. I understand that, especially if your child has just done something that others think they should be receiving consequences for, or just, you know, others want that behavior to stop. But for a therapeutic parent, to start with high nurture has a decided co-regulating advantage. Meeting the child where he or she is when they start to emotionally escalate reminds their emotional brain of the connection you have. It gives that child a quick dose feeling safe, and it may help the child to, you know, better be able to regulate. I think that's so important, Ginger, that we highlight that again, that if you are meeting the child where they are emotionally, when they're starting to escalate with a nurturing response, you're giving them a decided co-regulating advantage. I think culturally, a lot of times people look at that as a negative, that you're not giving them the command to stop, right? But I have a great story that illustrates this and warms my heart because my daughter does not need to be a therapeutic parent with her sons. They have not come from adversity, but she is a very relational parent and she's trying very hard to embrace what you and I would call the paradigm shift that you don't have to parent in you know, reward and consequence kind of way. So I may have told you the story before, but we were at a children's event and he was having a great time and it was getting late and she needed to go home. So she was rounding up both of her sons to go. And she told our grandson to go put his shoes on. And he said, no, just about like that. Right. No. And she continued to talk with the rest of us for a while. And she made the request again with the same tone of voice and got an even firmer no from him. He's like, no sort of hands on the hips kind of thing. Right. So I watched the emotions going across her face, right? She was frustrated and annoyed that he was saying no. And she was a little bit embarrassed as the parent of a child that looked like he was about to really act out here because she was here with her own parents, right? And a bunch of other parents and grandparents that she knew. All of that washed over her and she quickly got up and I was like, okay, I wonder what's going to happen next. You know, anything could happen. I wasn't sure what I was going to see. I didn't know if she was going to swat him or talk gruffly to him or demand that he comply. Instead, I saw her take a deep breath and get down on his eye level and say to him, she said firmly with a little tinge of frustration in her voice, why don't you want to put on your shoes? 
So he immediately, because of the tone, hung his head right for a second. And then she softened and said, you can tell me, are you having too much fun and you just don't want to go home? He looked her right in the eye and he said, no, mommy, there's a rock in my shoe. So watching that interaction taught me a whole lot of things. It taught me that my daughter was committed to using her skills of connection with him. That was her go-to in this situation, even though she was feeling all this other, what I would call societal pressure to maybe do something a little bit differently when he was obviously disobeying her, right? And that even though she was exhausted and frustrated with him and that it was the end of the day, but she used that connection and she got to the source of what was going on, the rock in his shoe. And of course, that was an easy problem to solve. And then everything was okay. I love that. You know, what comes up for me is that because of their connection, he trusted her enough to tell her. And I think that often that's the challenge with children who come from adversities Mm -hmm. and trauma, building that connection through nurturing that important first step while adding mega doses of structure at the same time. It's just Mm -hmm. so important in that therapeutic parenting structure. It looks mostly like safety and boundaries, but it also looks like consistency and predictability. It's having rules, but more importantly, having schedules and routines and things that children can learn to trust. And it's why we advise parents who are bringing an older child into their family, such as through adoption or foster care, to make that child's world small. And that means kind of to limit the number of outside activities and social interactions, often because they're so hypervigilant and their nervous systems are extra sensitive. They're just not developmentally able to handle all new activities or things like birthday parties, holidays. It's so overwhelming. And limiting does not mean that we aim to be punitive, but we are really wanting to focus on creating a safe, consistent, predictable environment for a child who may have never had that structure before. The goal really is to be mindful of overscheduling that can result in overstimulation, meltdowns, and boundary crossings. So we advise just to focus on that family unit, keep things simple, and especially place overall focus on the building of attachment and something, you know, as simple as regular bedtime, the use of electronics, the routine of chores, the participation in all of those things can make a child feel a part of the family. And, you know, we know that those things can all be rebellion points too, especially the older the child is. So that gives opportunity to practice more compassion when the child becomes upset about that boundary And to be able to listen to their feelings, that's really co-regulating with them. And that's when we go into that high nurture mode. But I think oftentimes we equate structure and rules with punishment. Mm -hmm. You break the rule, now you must have the consequence. And we don't consider that there are natural consequences when boundaries are crossed or rules are broken. Very often those consequences are more about the connection that you've broken and the relationship you've hurt. We also don't consider that the learning is entwined in the relationship and in the practice of getting themselves regulated after they've had a big feeling that causes them to dysregulate in the first place. Yes, that's all of what you just said is so really important that the consequence is in what happens to the relationship. And that can lead to a whole conversation about you know, rupture and repair and making the repair 
we could go that whole direction right now, but I'm wondering, Ginger, if maybe we should just do an entire episode on repair, because that's a skill set that I think that parents and teachers really need. Instead, I want to make sure that we get really clear for you, because what we're talking about may be confusing. You may need to shift your thinking. I want us to talk about four words, punishment, consequences, accountability, and discipline. Punishment. What is the definition of that, Ginger? Punishment is the infliction or imposition of a penalty as retribution for an offense. It's an action that we inflict upon another. Punishments are a negative reinforcement and often do cause us to avoid repeating a behavior because we don't want to endure that same suffering. But what do we learn from a punishment? And while there's a cognitive lesson of don't do this or you'll get X, does it really motivate us to learn other ways to express what we are expressing with the behavior? Or does it instead impact our relationship with the punisher and make us want to hide our feelings, avoid the situation and break down the trust in the relationship? Well, I'd say punishment is not a tool for a therapeutic toolbox. I would agree 100% because punishment inflicts suffering. And frankly, children who've had significant adversities, the children that we focus most of our work on at ATN and that we're thinking about in this podcast, they've endured a lot of suffering before. So punishment often feeds their already skewed inner working model, their core beliefs about themselves and about the world. And we know from studying that and from our earlier podcasts, that those beliefs are often, I'm bad, I'm worthless, everything's hopeless, the world's an unsafe place, I can't trust people to take care of me. And the punishment just reinforces that. It really does the opposite of what we're hoping to do as parents, which is to correct and guide, right? Parents and teachers often report that they give a punishment and the child doesn't seem to be deterred at all, right? It doesn't even seem to phase them. Those are big things, right? Or the opposite could happen. It could make them escalate or act out worse. And often that escalation is because of the shame and the humiliation and the confirmation in their inner working model, what they're thinking about themselves, that they're an awful person and they deserve that. And then they start to get full of shame and then full of anger and you know, all the negative emotion, right? So how many times have we heard, or maybe we've said that this child needs to be held accountable, even as we're trying to understand therapeutic parenting and trying to be more nurturing. Usually that cry for holding a child accountable is a code for let's give them a punishment, right? It comes from a place of emotion when we say it, or we think it, or when somebody is saying that, right? That they want restitution you know, almost like they want a pound of flesh. They want some payback for whatever this person or this child did. But let's rethink these words and get really clear on the definitions so that you don't use them interchangeably. We shouldn't equate punishment to accountability because punishment adds suffering on purpose to another person's life where we assume you're going to learn from it, but I don't think there's research out there that supports that. There are other ways to discipline, which literally means to teach, right? That's the definition of discipline without punishment. 
using the consequences that are there and the goal of instilling accountability. So Ginger, tell us about accountability. Accountability can be thwarted by punishment because a child isn't going to tell the truth. You know, think about if the punishment is sitting there in front of the table on them, whether it's, you know, literally or figuratively, I just don't think that communication is going to be open between the child and the adult if that child is scared. They will not come to you if they need help or if you aren't seen as safe or if they will be punished for being held accountable, right? For Mm -hmm. taking ownership. We always say you need to take ownership, but if they are fearful for the punishment that is going to happen, if they actually do take ownership, you know, then that punishment's just going to get in the way of that. So I want to give credit to Joe Brummer here. He is an expert in restorative practices, and I have learned so much from him. I want to talk to you about what he teaches about punishment. He says that punishment is focused on revenge and retribution for past perceived wrongdoings and that punishment actually teaches kids to lie. It just kind of defeats that whole purpose in the first place. He also says that punishment rarely results in positive changes in behavior. It may increase subversiveness or result in temporary suppression of behavior. But at best, it just produces compliance. It also reinforces a failure identity and teaches people what you don't want because it fails to teach what actually you do want. He also states that it sends a message that when you aren't doing your best, people will hurt you more. And it also teaches that threats of harm, taking valued things away and sending people away are all valid ways of getting your own way. And lastly, it models bullying. So, you know, not too great of a track record there. So let's talk a minute about consequences and how they're different or maybe not so different from punishments. We want to make sure to point out that the consequences that are best are ones that are natural and related to the situations and the behaviors. When we impose a consequence, and again, we're imposing them. So remember, you're going to be walking a fine line between a consequence and a punishment. But instead, if we look for the obvious natural consequence, for example, if your child isn't getting ready for school on time and they miss the bus, then your child has a late consequence at school, whatever that is. Maybe your child also has to do some things for you because you know they're late for school and then you have to take them to school. And when you have to take them to school, that means that you've got to take your time to do that. You've got to take the gas money to do that. You may be late for work, so you're going to have your own set of consequences, but they have to do something to help with that, right? Their natural consequence of that has something to do with that. Now you're saying, well, okay, my child is little and my child doesn't have any money, but there are many creative ways that you can get payback from your children. You can work that out and working that out with your child gives them a much better opportunity to learn something than just a punishment that makes suffering on them. They learn that you're not just shouting and telling them to hurry up to get ready for school because they may even be tuning you out every morning as you're doing that. But there are actual 
consequences, almost like dominoes falling for what happens when you miss the bus. And you can help unpack that and walk them through that. You can't do it if you're super upset and your lid is flipped. So part of this is being able to get yourself regulated and hold space for that. One of the challenges about consequences is that we often try to impose them in some grand way, and we often don't wait until we're not feeling emotional, right? Like, so we hop in when we're already upset, and before we realize it, we've punished them. We've actually punished them, not just a consequence, and we've actually set up a situation that's something we don't really want to do. So if I tell my child that she can't go to her cousin's birthday party because of something that she's done, then sure that, you know, that might be a consequence and she might be upset about not going to the party and that might have some learning effect on her. But all of a sudden I don't get to attend the party either, right? Because I got to stay home and take care of her. And the party probably didn't have a thing to do with whatever it was her behavior was in the first place. So it really wasn't natural. So consequences themselves are pretty tricky. And again, as natural as they can be, and as learning as they can be, the better they are for discipline, right? Right. The consequences and building accountability, it just really works best when the child is also involved in some of the deciding versus something, you know, placed on the child imposing that. Going back to Joe Brummer's work again, I just really like what he says about accountability. He says that It is acknowledging that you caused harm with your actions or behavior. Accountability is understanding how others were affected by your actions. And it is also taking steps to repair the harm to those hurt. It is also giving back to the community and making a plan so that it doesn't happen again. So, you know, we really want to hold our children to be accountable, but we also want to walk together with them through the accountability. But we also have to know that in the heat of the moment, when their behaviors communicate that their thinking brains are not online, when their lid is flipped, it is not the time to insist on any of these steps. That's exactly what you just Mm -hmm. said earlier, Julie, about holding that space. Nothing good's going to happen in the middle of it, if none of us are regulated and calm. Exactly, exactly. And this accountability piece is really at the crux of that balance between nurture and structure. The structure is holding them accountable, but the nurture is reminding us that if they're not in a place to process, right, we're going to be compassionate enough to recognize that. The other thing to remember as a therapeutic parent is that our children with significant adversities often have developmental trauma or attachment trauma, which impacts the way that they respond to us. So I'm talking specifically to those of you who are like I was and parenting a child who had some attachment challenges. The inner working model of that child, the messages that they send to themselves when they have attachment challenges may contain little or no sense of personal responsibility. So in other words, they may look like they don't care, you can't stop them, all of those things, and show no empathy to someone else. As a parent, that's really disconcerting, but it is part of what happens with that type and significance of trauma, right? So in other words, they may respond to us by pointing out that the behavior 
that was problematic was not my fault. It's not my fault. I didn't do it. All of those kinds of things, right? They may not see that they have choices. Instead, they're really presenting as seeing that they are the victims, right? Predominantly, I'm the victim. However, victims make choices. So choice is a concept that needs to be taught and we can't just like send them down and give them a lecture on choice, but instead it has to be taught experientially, not by telling them. And to do this, the parent must first establish that what the child did and simply define it as a choice, right? That this was a choice that you made and keep using that language and using that concept. And this is the beginning of helping them start to learn how to take control of their own behavior. So Here's a recent example of where this showed up and got me thinking about this. I was talking to a teacher the other day who had a child in his classroom who had a significant trauma history and the teacher was frustrated and his opinion was that the child was being allowed to use her trauma history as a crutch. And I said, wow, that's, tell me more about that, right? And he said, well, it was written in her plan that she could get up and move around the classroom when she was feeling overwhelmed as a way to regulate herself, right? That sounds good, but that she would move around the classroom and she would distract the other students, even to the point of taunting them, you know, and that when the teacher was trying to curb this behavior, the child actually said, I can't control that because I'm different. And so that, of course, made the teacher feel like the child wasn't going to make any attempt to control it. The teacher's comment was, well, where's the accountability for this child? How are we going to teach her to be accountable? And where's the accountability in these trauma-informed approaches anyway? So immediately he had hopped to all of that, right? The accountability happens when we set up the situation and the environment correctly. So yes, the student should be able to move around the classroom to help her regulate. That's a good tool and a good strategy. But of course, she shouldn't be able to distract the other children and especially not taunt them, right? So levying a punishment, like holding her accountable in the way this teacher was thinking because he was now frustrated and he wanted her to feel the punishment behind that, right? Is it would only reinforce this child's victim mentality. How do I know this? Because the child said, I'm different. You know, I don't have to control that because I'm different. So that child's already down that path in their working model, right? And levying a punishment may or may not stop this behavior. It probably won't stop the behavior, actually. The goal instead would be to empower this child by teaching her that she does indeed have a choice, right? About how she moves herself to calm herself down, that that's what the tool's for, right? Introduce her some new ways to move to maybe some new places to go to move and point out to her that she has a choice as whether to interrupt the other kids or not and interrupt her friends. And that the choice to keep interrupting her friends and taunting others will make her friends upset, you know, start talking to her about the consequences of that. It makes her friends upset. It disrupts the lesson. Nobody's learning all of those concepts and work that through in a more nurturing and structured way. Yeah, boy, that brings up a lot of things for me as you tell that story. I think it's important to point out that it sounds like someone had probably kind of reinforced her victim mentality, Mm -hmm. told her she was different because she's using that as a reason to not take responsibility, but it has been allowed and reinforced by people earlier. So that needs to, I think, be addressed directly. 
But the other thing I want to say is that what came to mind for me is the importance of teaching our children that we all have emotions and that all of us have big emotions that overwhelm our systems from time to time. That can be discussed and talked about very often. You know, that whole flipping your lid concept, that's one of the things that we love to talk about because it normalizes it because everybody flips their lid. Everybody loses it from, you know, time to time. So just talking about that, making kids aware of that is incredibly empowering for children. It helps them understand they're not the only ones who deal with big internal feelings. That is just something that we have to learn to manage throughout lives. And the other thing that came up for me in this story was that the big feelings that the teacher was having, you know, the defiance that he was observing from the student sounded like kind of activated him, triggered him. He seemed to be feeling really uncomfortable and maybe even disrespected, maybe hopeless of how to change the situation. If that student's always just going to fall back on, oh, I'm different. I can't change. That puts him, you know, in a tough situation as well. None of this is easy. The finesse comes in the connection to the child. If he doesn't already have a relationship with this particular student, it's going to be a little harder and a little slower. Like he's not going to be able to fix it with just one interaction. It's going to require he or other people at the school to get better connected to her and work this through with her. But it's necessary. It's the way that you unravel this child's misconceptions about themselves, about the classroom, about the world. The relationships that we build are so crucial to therapeutic parenting, to this kind of teaching that's a healing and trauma-informed way of teaching. I want to illustrate this with a story from my own life with my daughter. And I want to preface this by saying that what I'm about to tell you would not have ever happened if I had not spent months and years working on our relationship and our attachment. I walked through the landmine of triggering her shame and her victimhood for years because she had experienced early neglect and abuse and her inner working model was really strong on how worthless she was. And when I say she was convinced she was worthless, I don't mean that in a cognitive way. I mean that that was baked into who she was. And so it was really, really easy to trigger her shame and her feelings of worthlessness just by telling her no. I mean, we went years that way. So Ginger found this story because I didn't even remember this story from my own family in a blog post I made years ago, like well over a decade ago, citing one of my attachment heroes that helped us in our family journey, a therapist named Larry Smith from Maryland, who's no longer with us, sadly. And he was an early board member of ATN, and he wrote extensively on how to support children who had attachment disorders in their families and schools. So he would be delighted at some of the new neurosciences and the things that are happening because he was kind of ahead of his time in a lot of that. Let me set this up by saying that I would never recommend that a teacher or a parent for that matter, try this, what I'm going to talk about in this story, if you didn't have a deep relationship with the child you're with. I decided to give this try, this scenario below, after years of therapeutic parenting and after incredible therapies for attachment trauma and neurodevelopmentally supporting therapies that helped my daughter. 
her response to any simple correction, whether it was a correction in her behavior or a correction academically, like if she'd messed up a math problem or misspelled a word, was over the top. It wasn't always over the top, but I'd say 90% of the time when she made a mistake, we could hit the deck, right? And run for cover. Any request to revisit those explosive situations that happened, you know, when she was told no, or she was frustrated that way, she would say, I can't change. It's the way I am. I'm just a horrible person, like all of those, right? So this is the portion of the blog post, which is rooted in Larry Smith's approach. And so a lot of this is a paraphrase of Larry's words. Children with attachment difficulties very often respond to correction of their behaviors with shame-based misbehaviors. Parents can help break the cycle by expressing a vote of good faith that the child does have the resources necessary to handle the consequence given and to make a good choice, even if she doesn't want to. The parent needs to let go of any anger from the misbehavior that may remain while imposing the discipline as quickly as possible to avoid sabotaging the relationship and any attachment work that's already been done. So this counterintuitive technique can serve to both connect with children with attachment disorders and disrupt their negative interactions. The task for the parent is to complain to the child that she's being unfair to the parent. This complaint of unfairness must be attached to something specific that the child is doing or saying. Otherwise, the vagueness makes the technique not work. The parent must also be very neutral, matter of fact, because any irritation in your voice is going to also sabotage the intervention. Since complaints of unfairness are familiar in the child's working model because they also feel like they're being treated unfair, they might recognize your position immediately. And when the intervention works, they might actually have an empathetic reaction. That's all Larry's intervention strategy, right? So here's what I wrote last night. I decided I would try this little pearl of Larry's in action. Our daughter was mildly rude when we were at dinner with family friends last night. So her dad and I called her on it in the car ride home. Recognizing there was potential for shame and humiliation, we remained very matter of fact. And of course, she escalated anyway. So by the time we were home, she was yelling at us and she was very obsessed about the discussion. She just kept wanting to repeat it and repeat it and yell at us. It was a rather minor incident and we were trying to be very matter of fact about it. We were not therapeutic at times during all of this escalation because the escalation just kept going on and it got the best of our emotions. And so we tried all the things that we had tried a hundred times before that didn't work. We reasoned with her to try to get her to calm down. That didn't happen. We tried ignoring the fact that she was ranting at us and that didn't happen. And so I I was like, well, this was a failure. Frustrated that this has gone on so long. I remembered Larry's words above. And I just said to her as calmly as possible, you know, it really sucks for me when I'm in this situation with you. When you do something rude and you don't recognize it, because it's my job as your parent to try to help you with that. So if I point it out to you, then it becomes this bunch of ranting and raving either about how stupid I am as your parent or what a failure you are because you can't do anything about this. And neither one of these things is true. But it's really unfair that I can't do what a mother is supposed to do and try to help you. 
the ranting stopped and she sat there silent for a moment, like she was soaking it all in. But then she kind of went back to some wild ranting about what an awful person she was. And eventually, just because she was tired, she went to bed. The next morning, she came into my office as I was working and she said, Mom, I'm sorry last night for getting so upset when you were just trying to help me learn not to be so rude. It's not fair that I take all my negative feelings out on you. I know you're on my team. Wow. That was almost textbook, Larry. It was almost the perfect opportunity that ended in a attachment building hug. I mean, holy cow. I just had remembered his words and as counterintuitive as it sounded to complain to her, it made a difference. This interaction with my daughter was a long time in the making, but it was the beginning of a major shift in her internal working model. She is still, even to this day, a decade later, very easily shame triggered, but she doesn't live there in those complaints anymore. She's got an ability to accept no as an answer. She's got an ability to grow and change. And I think the thing that I love the most is that she has empathy. She can recognize the feelings of others, especially the feelings of the people she's close to, all the people around her. It was not the beginning of trying to hold her accountable because we'd always tried to hold her accountable. And we'd had the big feelings around all of that, but we tried and we tried to impose our will on her, but it was the beginning of her being able to accept the accountability. And that's the difference, right? And to really embrace the concept that repairing the relationship was not only important, but could be done without dying of shame and humiliation, which is what she used to think, right? All of that is so powerful. It's powerful for me to read it again and to remember what it used to be like that decade ago and what a major breakthrough that was. And one thing that I kind of pulled out of it and that I really want to cover before we kind of end here is that balance of high structure and high nurture. The truth is we are never going to get it 100% right. It's just impossible to be perfect in it. It's true. I'm always erring on one side or the other. And I mean, even in that story, I was erroring, right? So I knew what Larry's advice was and how that complaining intervention should go, right? But before I had to try all the other things, the things that never worked, the ignoring her, the lecturing her, the all of those things, right? So for me, what worked a lot when I was in the throes of all of this was to kind of debrief myself at the end of the day. You know, am I being too structured and too frustrated that you wouldn't comply because I came from a very structured upbringing. And so that was usually how I would err. Or am I being too nurturing? And what should I do the next time? You know, I had a hard time with that whole laying down my own control about how things played out. So I had to coach and self-talk myself and give myself grace. Well, I love that because, you know, that's really the point. There are a lot of factors that go into how we respond or react to our children in that moment. No one is hundred percent therapeutic, you know, but the good news is that we don't have to be in order to make a difference. It's right. not like if you're not getting it right, then you're messing things up. You know, the good news is we can still really make a difference. We've talked before about that 30%, you know, mm-hmm. that's really the requirement. And so 
you know, the bad news is that our own shame and fear really get tapped when we realize things Mm -hmm. don't go well. And a lot of times that causes us to give up, you know, so I want to tell you really quick about this new book coming out that I'm in love with that. I think it's going to be really beneficial for parents. If you've ever heard us talk about Dr. Mona Delahook, you'll know how much we adore her. She is just spot on in everything she says and does. She's really life-changing. She has a new book out called Brain Body Parenting, How to Stop Managing Behavior and Start Raising Joyful, Resilient Kids. It's really this paradigm shift that we've been talking about. And there's a quote in the book that I think goes along with everything that we've been talking about. I want to give that. Dr. Delahook says, it's important to understand that the goal isn't to pave the way for your child to act out without consequence or to avoid ever stepping out of their comfort zone. In fact, our aim is quite the opposite. Most parents want to support their children's future resilience and independence. When you let your child's nervous system serve as a roadmap, you can develop a better sense of when it's appropriate to pull back and soothe the child, change plans to make the child feel safe, or let the child struggle through a challenge. Human beings don't develop new strengths without experiencing some egress of stretching or even discomfort. The key is that the support needs to be tailored to the child and to the circumstances. So she talks about that it's very individualized for the family, for the parent, for the child. That's such wise words. We definitely want to take on this new book from Mona sometime soon in the podcast. And I also want to mention how important it is for others who are walking this therapeutic parenting journey. It was really important for me when I was walking through this to have others that were walking through it to support me and Mm -hmm. to talk about these concepts. ATN does have free membership for parents and an online support group. And there are other great groups out there as well. So please think about joining some kind of a community where people can talk to you about the challenges of shifting our thinking and being more nurturing and structured together and what that looks like, what our parenting steps are. Many of our staff and volunteers participate in a variety of these groups. The point is that this type of intensive parenting of children whose behaviors are often unexpected and pretty extreme is much easier when you know that you're not alone, when you know there's other people out there and you can bounce some ideas off of and you can celebrate together and you can debrief your day and you can hear that sometimes others have missed the mark too and still survive to the next day. And sometimes others have a big win and you can celebrate that together and it really helps you be able to continue to get back in the ring and go again and explore all of this. Right. We don't heal in isolation. And especially that goes for us adults and teachers. And that's why we're launching excited to announce we're launching team R&R in April, 2022, a community for educators and those who work in child serving professions to really dig in and discuss and support and learn from each other and explore trauma informed attachment focused resilience building ideas. 
So we'll make sure that today's show notes have links for both parents and educators on how to join these programs at ATN. We sure will. Thank you all for listening in today. It's really important, whether you're a parent or whether you are an educator or someone who works with children every day, that you find a support team as you're exploring all of these ideas, because it really helps you to bounce ideas and it helps you to stay, you know, supported and encouraged and It's not a one and done. It's not a course you can take. It's a practice that we're shifting our paradigms around how we work with kids. So together we can do that. That's why we're here. Thanks for listening, everybody. And we'll catch you next time. This has been another episode of Regulated and Relational. Join us next time when Ginger and Julie will be learning about restorative practices from Joe Brummer, restorative practices expert and author of Building a Trauma-Informed Restorative School. A special thanks to Lorraine Schneider, our editor, and Joe Kramer for donating our music. For more information about the Attachment and Trauma Network, visit our website at www.attachtrauma.org. Show notes and upcoming episodes will be available on our website and through anchor.fm. I'm Danny Pankratz. Thanks for listening.